This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Two calamities struck American schools at nearly the same time. On or about St. Patrick's Day of 2020, Americans woke up to the reality that the country was about to shut down in order to prevent the spread of a coronavirus. The COVID pandemic spread fear so deeply and widely that not even a highly effective vaccine could stamp out the fear. In many parts of the country, school doors remained closed for more than a year, learning shifted online, students began learning less, they were losing their physical fitness, they were suffering from social isolation and emotional disorder. All that happens beginning March 17th about. Then on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a black man, is murdered by a policeman in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The event, horrendous, sparked civil violence, a Black Lives Matter movement, campaigns to defund the police, and a leap forward in the country's murder rate, especially in low-income communities. In education, critical race theory, previously all but unknown to most people, blossomed into the narrative schools were being asked to teach. The New York Times launched its 1619 project, which uses critical race theory uh, as the basis for an educational curriculum taught to children. Outraged parents are reacting with passion and anger. Instead of coming together to fight a pandemic, it seems the country is splitting apart. Well, to discuss the twin crises in American education, I have with me today, Jason Riley, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a columnist for the Wall Street Journal who has kept a close eye on American schools and politics for over two decades. Most recently, Basic Books has published his new and important book, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. So Jason, uh, thank you for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me, Professor. Well, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said in the midst of the depression, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Are we doing the same thing today that he warned against back then? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm I'm that pessimistic um, about what's what's going on. I, 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 listening to your introduction, I, 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 there's a lot, there's a lot in there to unpack uh, in, in, in what you said. Um, um, the the connection between the uh, George Floyd uh, killing in Minneapolis and and the COVID lockdowns um, and and the, the the disparate impact of those lockdowns on on the black community. Uh, those are those are somewhat somewhat separate separate events. I think I, just to start with the with with COVID. I mean, obviously, um, it impacted some groups uh, uh, more devastatingly than others, and and I and I think that where where uh, blacks came in uh, and 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 uh, to some extent um, Hispanics was that these were these were workers. Uh, uh, who who had jobs they couldn't do from home, and so you know that 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 caused them to be uh, uh, carry carry much of the burden there in, in terms of, of of what happened in the pandemic. I'd also note that um, it was it was a the timing could not have been worse for those two groups because prior to 
the pandemic, um, and, 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 and a lot of liberals don't like to acknowledge this, um, but under the, the, the Trump administration, black and Hispanic workers, uh, particularly low, low skill workers, had seen the highest wage gains. Blacks and Hispanics had seen record low unemployment rates, record low poverty rates. Uh, all this had ha was happening in the run-up to uh, the pandemic. So, so it was a particularly bad time uh, for it to hit, hit those communities. But I think, again, they were hit hardest because of um, their overrepresentation among, among people who can't do their jobs from home. And then you combat that with, um, um, you, you know, they, 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 these are also groups that were going to have more trouble with distance learning for their, for their kids, whether it's because they lack, lack the technology at home or, or the wherewithal at home to, um, to do what, what better off families were able to do to get them through the crisis. And then, so, so you not only have the workers in these families, but, but their children as well, experiencing um, uh, setbacks uh, academically. And of course, um, there was already an achievement gap and, and, and this simply exacerbated it. So, um, so, 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 so I would separate that out from the, from the George Floyd situation, which I, I, I you know, you mentioned violent crime going up. Uh, frankly, the violent crime going up predates George Floyd. I mean, that's, that's something that the, the criminologists have, have seen um, dating to 2015, frankly, um, coming out of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Michael Brown stuff in, in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, uh, situations in Baltimore, situations in Chicago, um, these high profile incidents between uh, police and, and young black men, fatal encounters, um, that was creeping up already. Um, it culminated to some extent with, uh, with, with George Floyd, I think. And because people um, uh, uh, were home, um, not working, idle, uh, g getting out of the house, going in the streets, um, that, that probably all made that situation worse. But in terms of, of, of violent crime in general, we had seen that ticking up prior to George Floyd. And a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, I, I, I've said it, I, it, it would be a shock if crime were not going up. Um, uh, we've had these so-called bail reforms going on around the country where uh, we've been removing the discretion of judges and prosecutors to hold suspects until their trial. So we're just releasing people bail free falling under the banner of bail reform. You have prosecutors, um, uh, local prosecutors, uh, bragging about how few people they will prosecute. Um, uh, California has basically decriminalized shoplifting. I, I was reading recently that, that, that Walmart or, or Walgreens, one of those stores out there, was closing uh, a bunch more stores because of this. Um, you're allowed to, to steal essentially up to $1,000 worth of goods in California, and um, uh, you're not going to be prosecuted for it. Um, and, and, and so uh, businesses are having trouble with that. But uh, uh, so, so the, all of this was going on well before, before George, George Floyd. And, um, uh, and like I said, I'd be shocked if, 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 if crime was, was, was not rising. And then, of course, you've had this paired with a defund the, the police movement that's come out of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
um, uh, and, and, and those policies have been put in place in certain cities. Now police forces are having trouble recruiting officers. Um, you've seen crime spiking in these cities. Uh, cops are reluctant to get out of their cars, engage with civilians. And all of this has led to um, uh, the criminals having, having the run of the place. So, um, so th again, all of these, these factors have conflated uh, uh, to, to sort of put us in a bad, in a bad way right now. But I think um, they can be, you know, they can be discussed distinctly as well. Yeah, you're, you may be right that uh, you don't want to tie all these things together, though perhaps uh, because people were not engaged in the workforce and not engaged in school to the same extent that they had been, um, these events could lead to people gathering together and creating a storm sure, more sure, easily. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, but then things are happening inside the schoolhouse. We have the 1619 project that the New York Times has launched, uh, which is really a journalistic account of the history of American education that says life begins in 1619, not 1775 as, uh, as traditionally taught. Uh, and, and that um, we really think that racism is really at the core of the American tradition. Um, so is this just something to be ignored? It's another storyline out there and we, okay, so there's, a, we can have different histories that we can teach in our school. Is there something more serious here? I, I would argue it's more serious, uh, Professor. I, I, I don't think you can ignore it. Um, uh, it's being adopted in, 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 in thousands of uh, uh, schools all over the country in all 50 states. You've got the um, uh, largest teachers unions, National Education Association, American Federation of Teachers, have uh, 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 approved proposals endorsing it. Um, one of the, the leading proponents of this thinking, um, uh, Professor uh, Ibram Kendi, has uh, spoken at, at these union events. Um, uh, his books are being uh, made available in classrooms. Um, and um, so, no, I don't, I don't think you can ignore it. And, and I don't think you should because, um, well, 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 for a couple reasons. One is... Um, people should take issue with the, with the accuracy of the claims being made in the 1619 project. And, and there are a few uh, academics who have, um, uh, people like Sean Wilentz and, and James McPherson and Gordon Wood come to mind, but they, they remain a distinct minority of historians who are challenging uh, the history. And I, and I think that is um, emblematic of a, of a much larger problem among intellectuals in America and that is a cowardice, um, frankly. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the errors and the misrepresentations in the 1619 uh, project essays are so glaring. Um, uh, uh, every, every decent historian of every decent uh, uh, history department in academia should be shouting the stuff down from the rooftops. And you say, why aren't they? Why aren't they doing it? Why are only a handful of people stepping up uh, and, and, and saying this? I mean, after all, um, the, the lead author of the 1619 Project is a journalist named Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
And um, she's not an academic. She's never written an academic paper. She's never written a book uh, about anything, let alone about uh, US history or the history of slavery or the history of the American Revolution. Um, uh, why are all of these academics and scholars deferring to this journalist? I mean, there, there are no shortage of books in this country about slavery and about the American Revolution. None of them have been written again by Nicole Hannah-Jones. <laughs> so why does she do all of this deference? And it's because they're scared. They're scared of, of, of being called names. This is a black woman who has a, 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 a very big platform at the New York Times and, 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 and hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. They're afraid of the social media mobs. They're afraid of her followers. They're afraid they'll be called a sexist and a racist. They're scared. And, and that's a shame. That's a shame. Um, um, well, I was at Stanford uh, yeah. uh, not too long ago, and um, she was introduced to the uh, enthusiastic audience assembled uh, by the provost, uh, you know, yeah. as, a, as a major figure. Um, the provost, to her credit, didn't endorse uh, her views uh, specifically, but uh, neither did she criticize them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, very it, it, important people are, are, you know, putting their hands on and blessing this document. It's uh, it's, it's disturbing. It, it, it is disturbing. Um, uh, and, and so one reason to, 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 to not ignore this, I think, is because of the historical inaccuracies. And, and, and just as a. So what are some uh, of the uh, historical inaccuracies? Just, you know, one or oh, two. Oh, sure. Well, well one is. Um, to say that the, uh, the the largest inaccuracy, the overriding inaccuracy, is to put slavery at the center of uh, America's founding, and to insist that America, and really the West in general, is somehow uniquely evil because of the slave past, when in fact slavery is an institution that has is, is existed all over the world for thousands of years, including in the Western hemisphere, long before any Europeans or Africans uh, got there. And, 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 and so too, what, what makes America unique is not its slave past, it's not slavery, it's emancipation that makes America unique in this history. And, and, and so, so, so that is the overriding problem with, uh, with the project itself. And that's why I think it is of a piece with this critical race mentality, this critical race theory thinking, uh, uh, putting racism uh, at, at the center of uh, viewing everything through a racial lens. And, and we, could, we could do the same for Scandinavia, which is where I come from, because <laughs> Uh, the biggest uh, way to uh, get things done was to beat up on your neighbors and enslave everybody. <laughs> you had destroyed all the uh, leaders and uh, you know yeah. contaminate the, the the people next door. So, so the claims in there are that uh, you know America became this wealthy nation um, uh, through the institution of slavery. Um, uh, and, and again, that has been challenged by historians and economists alike. That while you know individual slave owners may have gotten wealthy, that's different from saying the nation as a whole benefited from slavery. You know, the poorest parts of the country during slavery and after slavery were those parts of the country that had slaves. 
Um, uh, and, and, and that's true not only here in America, but in other parts of the world, in Brazil, the same thing. Parts of Brazil that had slaves, and Brazil imported far more slaves than, than America did, um, were the poorest, poorest parts of Brazil. And so um, uh, that, that, that's one claim, the, the, the supposed economic uh, uh, benefits of slavery that accrue to, to America. Um, uh, and, and then, and then there's history, the, even this basics about the civil rights movement. There's a line in, in one of the essays that said, um, blacks fought back mostly alone against this, uh, these institutions, you know, ignoring the Quakers, ignoring, um, uh, the, the, uh, uh you know, the radical Republicans, uh, ignoring, uh, the fifties and sixties civil rights movements where you had alliances between Catholics and blacks and Jews and blacks and, and other groups and, 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 uh, the, ignoring the history of the NAACP, which was founded by blacks and whites alike. So, so there are just blatant, blatant, uh, misrepresentations of history, and and so that that is that is one reason again. Just to, to, we can't ignore this. It's the historical inaccuracy. The the, the other reason, and and maybe this is uh, even more important, or at least as important, uh, professor, is that we are becoming an increasingly diverse and multiracial society, uh, getting more so by the day. It seems um, the idea that we would teach our children in schools, in elementary schools, to focus on their racial differences, I think is a recipe for disaster. And that is what critical race theory does. That is what the 1619 Project does. It fosters resentment. It fosters racial divisions. And the idea that we would teach our children to obsess over their racial differences, I think is, 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 uh, something worth fighting back against vociferously. And, 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 and that is what um, um, I think the 1619 Project specifically and, and the critical race thinking uh, in general uh, is doing. So what is critical race theory? I mean, there's been a lot of commentary about it and there's a lot of people who write and claim to be part of that movement, but how would you characterize critical race theory in a nutshell? Well, there, there is a, a bit of a semantic debate over um, how to define it. And, and I think it's sort of a parlor game that, that, that people play, uh, keeping the definition purposely vague so that uh, anytime someone says something they don't like about it, they can say, well, that, that, that's not really critical race theory. Um, uh, but the, the, the definition I work from uh, is a very broad one. And, and that is that critical race theory is a way of thinking about racial inequality in America. Um, and, and I think whatever definition you, you want to use, um, that, that, that definition would probably fit comfortably inside of your, your definition. Um, it's just a way of assessing uh, uh, racial inequity. Uh, that, that's what critical race theory is, is, is trying to do. Um, it deals in racial it power. It, it, inequality is due to the behavior of white people who have been discriminating and continue to discriminate against blacks systematically over a, a long period of time. Right. It, 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 it posits that the problems within the black community are entirely the fault of whites and the responsibility of whites to solve. Um, uh, again, it's something that started in academia, uh, particularly in the 70s. Um, 
uh, but it has since crept off of, of campus. Um, uh, and, and not only into our elementary schools via the 1619 project, but also into you know, diversity training uh, and racial sensitivity training in the workplace. This is also uh, uh, coming out of the, the, the critical race literature. Um, uh, you know, these, these, these words, these phrases, the jargon, white privilege, systemic racism, unconscious bias, this is the jargon of critical race, race theory and it's, and it's worked its way into our vernacular in recent years through popular writers like, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Michelle Alexander and Robin DiAngelo and, and Ibram Kendi and of course, Michael Hannah-Jones. So, um, you know, this was something that was once relegated to um, uh, uh, the academy um, and no one much paid attention to it when, when that was the case. But now that it is, um, um, you know, taken over the thinking of, of, of mainstream policymakers, um, it's getting a lot more, a lot more attention. So, okay. So it says that um, white people and racism and slavery are the reason why we have racial inequality. Why would you, how would you argue against that? What do you think is the evidence that suggests that's not the whole story? There's more to it than that. What's, what's the evidence that you bring to the table? Well, one, one problem is, is racism has been the constant down through history. We've always had racism, but um, groups have advanced or retrogressed uh, over time. So it's hard to, to use racism as a causal factor um, uh, when explaining uh, inequality. Um, uh, the other problem with a, with a direct link between um, uh, inequality and, 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 and discrimination um, is that uh, we have groups that um, have been discriminated against um, and, and, and yet managed to advance economically and socially in society, uh, including black people. Um, uh, if you look back at the uh, first half of the 20th century in particular, um, you'll see periods of tremendous economic advancement, blacks leaving poverty at unprecedented rates, in the 40s and 50s, Blacks entering the, the skilled professions, middle-class professions, doctors, lawyers, teachers, social workers, and so forth in the, in the 50s and 60s and, and early 70s. And um, uh, so, so again, the, the, these, these were time periods where um, there's a lot more discrimination in American society uh, than there is today. And yet, you, you still had this, this progress occurring. You can also, you know, uh, look at it this way. I mean, Asian Americans outperform white Americans, both academically um, and economically and have for decades. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that, that, that white Americans have experienced uh, uh, more discrimination than, than Asian Americans to uh, explain that outcome. Uh, conversely, you, you, you have uh, Black Americans outperforming Hispanic Americans. Again, I don't think anyone would argue that, that that's explained by the fact that Hispanic Americans have experienced more uh, discrimination in America than Blacks have. So, so uh, these, these causal um, links are, are very, uh, uh, you know, they, they, you can push back against them empirically. There's a professor at Ohio University named Richard Vetter who just published a, a, a study recently showing that the, the, the greatest economic gains among Blacks since emancipation occurred in the post-war period of, of, the, of the late 1940s between then 
and uh, the early 1970s. Um, uh, there's a Harvard scholar, Robert Putnam, whose who's recent research has, has reached the same conclusion that the, the first two thirds of the 20th century were the period of the greatest gains of blacks relative to whites. Uh, so uh, again, this, this all overlaps with some of the worst discrimination in US history, Jim Crow, um, uh, segregation, um, uh, you know, legal segregation. Um, uh, and yet we saw these, these advances. And, and, and it says to me that uh, while discrimination may be a factor in, in, in racial disparities, we have to be cautious about assuming it is the factor. And, um, and that I think is what uh, too many of your uh, critical race proponents do. Um, they, they don't give a lot of, uh, of attention to uh, non-racial factors that could be uh, having an impact on these disparities. Well, you know, the period after the Second World War was a period when uh, African-Americans were being more accepted. I mean, Truman said, okay, we're going to desegregate the armed forces. We had the uh, Fair Employment Practices Act that he uh, uh, managed to uh, pass. Uh, you, you got, uh, you saw, well, you got the school desegregation case in 1954. So even though the progress that was being made wasn't as fast as many people thought should be made, it was a period of amelioration. It wasn't- Well, well some, some, somewhat. This was also a period of Bull Connor sicking dogs on black protesters. This, this was a period of uh, you know, uh, uh, mobs of people trying to keep their schools from being integrated. Um, so, I mean, you know, Truman might have been saying whatever, but this is what was happening uh, in the streets, in the real world. And, and, and yet during this same period, we saw, you know, between 1940 and 1960, black poverty fall by 40 percentage points. No great society program has ever duplicated that amount of black progress. I mean, no affirmative action pro uh, program has ever duplicated that amount of black progress. And so uh, what, what I'm saying is that you had these two things occurring simultaneously. Um, uh, 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 black oppression, uh, racist lawmakers, racist laws, and tremendous black economic advancement. And then sometime uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, these trend lines started to slow, stall, and in some cases reverse course. And what I'm saying is that something other than racism must have been the cause of that change. And, 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 and there are too many um, uh, people, I think, who, who, who are, are too quick to simply attribute the disparities we see today to racism, even though a previous era uh, experienced more racism and yet saw um, uh, smaller disparities, or at least Blacks moving in the right direction at, at faster rates. Well, you're the biographer of Thomas Sowell, who is an economist at the Hoover Institution, who has written a lot on ethnic differences and, and economic progress, and has addressed some of these topics that you're talking about here. What, what does he have to say about this? Um, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yes. I, I think... Um, um, he said much of, of, of what I'm saying, um, uh, that, that it, it, and he's, he's taken an international perspective. He's looked at, you know, not only the progress uh, 
of uh, you know the Japanese in America uh, or the Chinese in America, the Jews in America, but the progress of Jews in in in, in Eastern Europe, uh, an oppressed group that nevertheless managed to outperform their oppressors economically in country after country after country. He's talked about uh, the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia once again. This minority group outperforming. Um, uh, their oppressors, the, 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 they, they were hated in society, banned from schools, banned from, from, from uh, professions, and yet managed to rise economically. And just as Blacks were doing in the first part of the 20th century. And, 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 and so this, uh, what Sol has argued is that um, uh, being hated by, larger, by the larger society is, 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 is less important in terms of, of, of a barrier to black progress, then, then developing these internal uh, skills and habits and attitudes, human capital, what he's essentially talking about culture. And if a group uh, develops that human capital, um, uh, they can overcome being hated by the surrounding society as they have in country after country after country. And he gives example after example after example of this. And, 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 and so his focus has always been on, on uh, the development of that, of that human capital. And, and uh, uh, you know, that's, that's quite controversial because that, that, that assumes that, that, that blacks play a role in these disparities, that it's not just about the behavior of whites and um, and then that that gets called blaming the victim, and 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 that's that remains taboo to talk about the role that culture plays in a group's uh, movement from poverty to prosperity, uh, and so a lot of people don't don't want to go there. That gets you called names. That gets you canceled. To use today's uh, today's uh, jargon, um, uh, but these are things that need to be discussed. Um, you know, we were I was talking earlier about intellectual cowardice. Um, you know, one way that Sol distinguished himself is that he was never afraid. He was, he was, he was never um, afraid of being canceled, afraid of being shouted down. He, he followed the facts where, where, they, where they led and he reported the results, even though they were politically correct in some cases. He was much more interested in truth than in popularity. And when I see this intellectual cowardice surrounding the 1619 Project and critical race theory in general, um, I, I, it, it reminds me of, of what a treasure Thomas Sowell was for uh, not backing down. Um, you know, you know one, of the, one of the early, and it's interesting how this has evolved because one of the early critics of critical race theory was Randall Kennedy, a law professor at Harvard, who is a man of the left. I mean, um, but nevertheless, uh, was, wrote a blistering critique of critical race theory, just saying this is this is intellectually lazy scholarship, um, and, and and can be empirically uh, 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 push. You know, you can push back against it empirically, and and it's interesting. You know, today when we think of critical race theory, it's this left right issue. Um, you have no shortage of conservatives willing to go after it. Where have all the Randall Kennedys gone? What, what, there, there was a time when you had intellectual enough intellectual honesty for uh, uh, people on the left to take on other people on the left. And, and I, I think it, it, it tells you um, um, uh, a little something about where we are today, uh, uh, intellectually, in terms of the debates that are allowed to happen in, 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 our, in our society versus the debates that used to be allowed 
to happen. And, and I think we've moved considerably uh, a considerable distance in the wrong direction, Professor. So going back to Thomas Sowell's ideas, where is the human capital development in the 40s, 30s, 40s, uh, 50s that generated this, um, you know, amazing improvement in the well-being of Black people? It was the family. Uh, what are the resources that were being mobilized? It was the family. The, the, the family is, is the greatest uh, uh, socializing unit ever invented, the nuclear family. And, and if you go back to, I mean, you can even go back to the institution of slavery and certainly coming out of slavery, um, the, the, the black family was in a much better place than it became in subsequent decades. You know, between the, the late 1800s and, and throughout the first half of the 20th century, black marriage rates were equal or higher than white marriage rates uh, in America. Um, and, and I think with the later breakdown of that black nuclear family, you began to see a, a lot of the other social, negative social outcomes that we associate with black ghettos um, and poor black communities in general these days, be it, you know, school dropout rates, um, uh, 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 teen pregnancy, uh, substance abuse, uh, uh, criminal behavior, and, and, and all the rest. Uh, I mean, there, there's a large literature out there, as you know, um, on, on the correlation between growing up in a home without, without a father present and a lot of bad, bad outcomes in life for the children. And, and, and that's what we've seen. Uh, and that's what we did not see uh, in, the, in, the, in the early part of the, of the 20th century. And I think that had a lot to do with the progress that we saw in the early part of, of the 20th century, frankly. Well, conversely, then that would be the reason for the decline uh, in the uh, gains in the well-being in the uh, African-American community, the rise of the welfare state, the dependence of families on the government instead of on the two parents working together. Uh, is that your policy prescription that we need to rethink the role of the welfare state in our society? Oh yes, I think we absolutely do. Um, if you if you look at the trend lines following the expansion of of the welfare state uh, under the Great Society, um, and then you know after Johnson, Nixon doubles down. A lot of people don't talk about that or remember it as well. But but Nixon poured even more money into these programs that Johnson had initiated or expanded on his watch. And, um, and, and the trend lines just in, 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 in terms of labor force participation, um, um, crime rates, uh, poverty rates and so forth. Uh, again, you see, you see a stalling of progress uh, or, or slower progress. And in some cases you see progress reversing uh, entirely. And, 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 and yes, I think that the, the welfare state, the expansion of the welfare state played a huge role in, in putting in place uh, incentives uh, that, that, that drove those trends. And unfortunately, um, you know, we're in a situ situation now where the, where the, where the Biden administration uh, is trying to push through the greatest expansion of, of, of the safety net since the Great Society. And, and, and so they, they want to double down on that strategy. And, uh, and my concern is, is that um, why, why should we see any, any, any different results than we saw um, the first time? 
and 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 so I'm I'm very wary of where they want to go with this. And 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 in, in the case of the Biden administration, they they want the safety net to be extended well into the middle class. We're talking about subsidies and new programs and credits and so forth for people making $100,000, $200,000 a year. Um, uh, it's, it's almost like a concerted effort to increase dependency, uh, even among middle-class Americans, even among the, the professional class. And I, I don't think this, um, this ends well. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned about um, uh, what's going on in Washington right now. What can you be optimistic about? The people get to vote every four years. <laughs> is there any um, hope, or is it like Don? You know, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I'm optimistic. I I I am I am optimistic about. Um, I I think the um, the COVID the pandemic has a silver lining in at least um, one respect, and that is that it has um, I think helped to expose. Um, uh, some problems with public education, and namely um, how much power uh, the teachers unions have over public education. Um, if, if kids can't go to school, uh, uh, parents can't go to work. Um, and so I think that uh, a lot more people might start to think about how much power the unions have and whether um, we want a system in which they have that much power. People watch the unions leverage that power uh, throughout the pandemic for better pay, uh, for, for more benefits and so forth. And, and I think uh, uh, the, the unions angered a lot of people. And, and so um, to the extent that this leads to uh, more explorations of school choice, particularly for low-income people, and we've seen, we've seen some inklings of this. We've, see, we've seen enrollment at traditional public schools fall in the wake of COVID and more people seeking out charter schools and, and private schools and Catholic schools. Um, and, and, and I think that's a positive uh, development uh, actually. And so um, um, uh, we'll see what happens, but, but that's one, one thing I am uh, slightly hopeful about. Well, thank you, uh, Jason, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jason Riley, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the author of a fantastic a new book, a biography of Thomas Sowell entitled Maverick, Don't Pass It Up. This is Paul Peterson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at Harvard University. This is the Education Exchange, which is released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.